You turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 12. I was reading this uh, before coming up here and was thinking just what uh, a glorious thing to see the, the power and the plan of God at work. So if you read along with me, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew's brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples, and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. I pray that you would be with Pastor Andrew as he unpacks it for us today. pray that you would speak through him, help us to see your power and your wisdom and your plan on display. Lord, just help us to take that to heart, to remember who you are, and to trust in your plan. And I just pray that you would bless us today in your name. Amen. Last week, we talked about how this is a very momentous very important, very crucial occasion in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Opposition is growing against him, and also uh, he has a year or two left of ministry, and who will pick up the mission? Who will finish the mission? Who will keep that mission moving forward? And so this crucial, momentous occasion where Christ must choose his apostles who will take up that mantle, become the foundation of the church, and move the mission forward. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge text. And so last, last week we looked at just verse 12 and how Jesus spent the whole night in prayer, and I hope we were all encouraged and challenged in our prayer lives. Uh, and even as I think about that, remember that the month of March is our prayer emphasis month, And so we are asking that all of us who are able and willing to be here at 7 o'clock right here in this room, and we're having that time of prayer where we're coming alive to the power of prayer, the priority of holiness, uh, also the necessity of faith, and a few other topics. But that will be this topic for this Wednesday night, the necessity of faith. But just that the priority of prayer, Jesus has a major decision to make, and so decision time equals prayer time. And so this morning, we're picking it up in verse 13. Daylight comes. Jesus has been praying all night. Daylight comes. He knows what he's going to do. He gathers all of the disciples to him. And then from that crowd of disciples, however large the number was, Luke doesn't tell us, he calls out his 12 apostles. That is 
sovereign election. That is sovereign grace. There is no vote. Uh, there is no, hey, what do you guys think? There's no ballot. There's no trials. There's no application. Uh, Jesus comes out from prayer. He knows the 12 the Father has given to him. He calls them out of that midst of disciples. He sovereignly, graciously chooses them. Remember in John 15, 16, Jesus says to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. And we see that taking place right in our text. Now you might be wondering, as verse 13 says, when day came, he called the disciples and chose from, from them 12 whom he named apostles. You might be wondering, what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. A disciple, very simply, means student or learner. We are students of Christ and students of his word, and we seek to grow in our understanding of his word and his understanding of the Son and understanding of God and his promises and his purposes. And as we grow in that understanding, we then seek to imitate Christ, right? So discipleship it's helpful for me to remember this way, and I hope it's helpful for you. Discipleship is information and imitation. Discipleship is learning all the information you can about God and his son through his word. But it's not just information. It also must result in imitation. As you learn about Christ and God, you must seek to imitate him and become like him in your words and your thoughts and your actions. So that's a disciple. What's an apostle? An apostle is still a disciple. But an apostle is a disciple with a specific task. Uh, apostle simply means to be sent out or sent one. It's one who is com commissioned for a very, very specific task. Uh, this is why later in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus says about his disciples, those who receive you receive me. Those who will not receive you do not receive me. And so a disciple acts, or an apostle, uh, acts and speaks on behalf of the one who sent them. So much so that when the apostle speaks, it's as though Christ himself is speaking. And when an apostle acts, it's as though Christ himself is acting. They act and speak on the behalf of Christ himself. In John chapter 20, Verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. So you see that official commissioning, uh, ascending uh, to act and speak as his representatives. In fact, you could even say this, the first apostle was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the official representative of God the Father. And he acts on his, his behalf and says and does nothing apart from the will of the Father. And so Jesus is the first apostle, and here he gathers 12 more, and he sends them out to act and speak on his behalf. Perhaps a modern-day analogy would be someone who has power of attorney. One who has power of attorney acts and speaks on the behalf of, of another. You could also think of ambassadors. Uh, ambassadors, when they go to foreign nations, they act and speak on behalf of our nation. Those are kind of modern-day equivalents of apostles. The question often comes up, uh, having seen the difference between apostles and disciples, the question often comes up, are there apostles today? And it depends what you mean. Uh, the answer to that is yes and no. 
Uh, there are no, uh, today there are no what I call big A apostles, but we are all little A apostles. We are all sent by the Father, by the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell others about him, right? That's the great commission. We've all been sent. We're all on that mission that Christ has given us to make much of Christ, to use our talents, our gifts, our voice, our all, our everything, to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful privilege uh, that God has given to us. However, there were very, very few what I call big A apostles, just, a, just a, a dozen or a couple more than a dozen, so of them depends on how you interpret a few things in, in the passage. But big A apostles uh, were set apart uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ to this divine office of authority uh, to guard and to guide the infant church. So there are no living big A apostles today. Listen carefully to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that God's church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, a foundation is something you lay how many times? Once, right? A foundation is laid once. And that foundation of the church was laid by the authoritative work of the big A apostles who recorded perfectly uh, the works and the acts of Christ in the New Testament by the Holy Spirit. Now that that foundation has been laid by the apostles and the prophets, uh, we do not go on trying to extend that foundation. What we do as a church, what we do as Christians, is we seek to, by God's grace and God's strength, build on that foundation that has already been laid. That's what we are, we are doing. And if, if we are, are trying to extend uh, that foundation or add to that foundation in some way, you can be sure that is no church of Christ. The church of Christ is built on the apostles and the prophets. That is the foundation uh, that we build. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> so let me say it this way. If what you teach and preach and believe is not in accord with what the apostles by the Spirit wrote down in the New Testament, then don't call that Christianity because it's not. Christianity is found through the, the, the words and the actions of the apostles inspired of, by the spirits. The 12 alone were given authority by Christ to tell us what the teachings of Christ are. I'm not free to redefine it, and neither, you are, neither are you. So again, if you teach and preach and believe something that, that's not found in the New Testament, don't call that Christianity, because it's not. The sure ground upon which we build our church and our families and our lives and by which we would challenge the society in which we live is the writing of the apostles. Not the apostles plus tradition. Not the apostles plus the Book of Mormon. Not the apostles plus modern criticism. But the apostles alone and their authoritative teaching as, as those given by Christ once and for 
awe. And the New Testament, praise God, is able and sufficient to thoroughly equip every one of us in this room for faith and good works. The scriptures are an amazing gift to us from God. Well, what about these 12 apostles? We're going to take just kind of a closer look at their 12 names and then think a little bit about them. Then I'm going to try and try and draw out some application from, from this list of names here. But we have these 12 names. This is one of four places in the entire New Testament where we find the list of names. You can find the other ones in Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 10 and Acts chapter 1. And if you were to take the time to, to study those four uh, lists of the names of the apostles, uh, you would find that Simon is always mentioned first. And you would also find that Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last. Save the one in Acts, he's not mentioned at all because at that point he has died. The first four in every list are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John, though not always in that order. Peter is always first, but sometimes it's Peter, James, John, Andrew, or something like that. Those first four names tend to fluctuate. Those first four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what you could call Jesus' inner circle. And it's interesting, as you look at the list, you can see how uh, they're divided into three groups of four. And with each group, as you make your way through it, you see a decreasing level of intimacy with Christ, and also a decreasing level of information that we have about any of them. We know a lot about, well, a fair amount about Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. We don't know a whole lot about the rest of them. As you make your way through that list, there's a decreasing level of familiarity that we have with them, and also a decreasing level of intimacy they appear to have with Christ when you consider Judas Iscariot is the last one who's mentioned. It's very, very interesting how that works. I also don't think the number 12 is random. I think the importance of it is especially established in Acts 1. If you read Acts 1, Judas at this point is gone, and the early church is at pains to get that number back to 12. Right? It's very, very interesting as you read Acts 1. There's something significant about the number 12 for the apostles. Why 12? I agree with... Warren Wiersbe, who said it well as I was thinking on this and and reading a few different commentaries, uh, Warren Wiersbe said this, quote, the number of the disciples is significant because there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. In Genesis, God started with Jacob's 12 sons, and in Exodus, he built them into a mighty nation. Israel was chosen to bring the Messiah into the world so that through him all the nations of the earth could be blessed. However, the nation of Israel was now spiritually decayed and ready to reject her own Messiah, God had to establish a holy nation, a purchased people, and the 12 apostles were the nucleus of this new spiritual nation. So track that back to the end of of Luke 5, where in Luke 5, Jesus talks about old wine, new wine, new wine, new wineskins. You can't put new wine in old wineskins, or it pops, it bursts, right? If you make your way through Luke 6, Jesus is explaining some, some of that new wine, Some of that new wine is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's a new Sabbath found in Christ, right? And here in our text, we're seeing a new nation, a new community, a new people of God uh, that Jesus is forming uh, through the apostles. As I was saying, some of these men, we know a great deal about others. We know precious little. Peter, we probably know the most about, right? 
Peter's always named first. He's, he's the most famous. He appears to be the leader. His name means stone, uh, but he often is anything but rock-like. <laughs> he's very impulsive. Uh, he's very unstable in a lot of ways. He was certainly a man of action. He famously denies Christ uh, three times, but later is restored by Christ and preaches on the day of Pentecost and is used to bring thousands to faith in Christ. A great reversal, a great example of God's grace. Peter wrote two epistles, his ministry mostly geared toward the Jewish people, while Paul's ministry geared toward the Gentiles. According to Jerome, an early church father, Peter was crucified upside down at Peter's request because he did not think it was he, that he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. That tells you something about the guy, huh? Well, Peter had a brother with a pretty good name. His name is Andrew. And Andrew is well known as an evangelist. In fact, every time you find Andrew in the Gospels, he's telling someone about Jesus. And it's because of him that Peter meets Christ. Uh, Andrew is a fascinating figure in the Scriptures. Andrew is initially a follower of John the Baptist. Uh, later on in his life, it's believed that Andrew ministered in modern-day Georgia and Russia, uh, present-day Turkey and Istanbul, and even Greece. Uh, it's most likely while in Greece he was martyred. And this part blows me away. While he's there, he preaches something that someone doesn't like, and he gets crucified. But he hangs on that cross for two days. And the testimony of the church fathers is he proclaimed Christ to everyone who would walk by as he's hanging on that cross. Ever the evangelist, huh? After Peter and Andrew, as James and John, famously referred to as the sons of what? The sons of thunder, which no doubt is a, uh, a picture, gives us an idea of their temperament. Uh, loud, boisterous uh, kind of men. Uh, that's most likely why, if you remember that one text, they, uh, because of their fiery temperaments, they want Jesus to call down fire from heaven and nuke the Samaritans, right? If you remember that text, because they rejected Jesus. Of the two sons of thunder, we know much more about John than we do about James. John is referred to as the disciple Jesus loved and became known as the apostle of love. So what a transformation, right? From the son of thunder to the apostle of love. And as an apostle, he, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. He wrote John, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. His brother James was the first of the 12 to be martyred. Remember, James is preaching, and Herod has him taken out by the sword. He's the first one to be martyred. Next is Philip. <clears throat> we know next to nothing about Philip. I'll say that he was excited to tell Nathaniel about Jesus. And after Philip comes Bartholomew. Again, we know very little about Bartholomew as I trip over all these names. Many think that Bartholomew was actually, was actually Nathaniel found in John 1. Uh, many, many scholars point to that, that actually another name for Bartholomew was Nathaniel. If so, then Bartholomew was a man of the purest heart. Because remember, Jesus said about Nathaniel, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So if that's true... What a contrast with James and John, a man who's quiet and pure of heart and no guile versus the sons of thunder, right? 
Matthew, we've talked about before, previously in Luke chapter 5, he's a, he's a Levi, he's, he's also known as Levi, I should say, he was a tax collector, and thus regarded by the Jewish people as a collaborator and a compromiser, right? He was not appreciated, he was not loved by the Jewish people. Thomas is also known as Didymus, which just simply means he was a twin. He's most well known, unfortunately, for doubting the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection. There's strong evidence that suggests he's the first to bring the gospel all the way to India, where he was then martyred. You keeping up? <laughs> There's four more. Four more. James, the son of Alphaeus, not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus, or uh, the other James, the brother of, of John. That's about all we know about him. Simon is referred to as the zealot. That's very interesting. What does that mean? What does it mean that he was the zealot? Does that mean he was zealous or hot and, and passionate for Christ? Or as many think, that actually means he was an activist, a.k.a. possibly a terrorist is how we would say it today. Remember, the Jewish people have been overthrown by the Roman Empire, and there were many zealots at that time who were actively working to overthrow Rome. There's a very good chance that's what Simon is. That Simon is a zealot, and he is actively involved in overthrowing Rome. Again, think about that. Matthew is a what? He's a tax collector. And here you have Simon the zealot. And Jesus put them together. It's an amazing thing to think about. We'll unpack that as we move forward. I, I personally like to think, I very well could be wrong, but I personally like to think he was called a zealot, not only because he was zealous for the nation of Israel, but he was zealous for Christ. I like to think that Christ transformed him in that way. Perhaps at first he was more the zealot for the nation, but as he walked and spent time with Christ, he became more the zealot for Christ. I could very well be wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you call me wrong on that one. <laughs> we can still go out to eat, right, if we, disagree, if we disagree on that one. Still have fellowship, still have unity in Christ. The final two in this long list of names are both named Judas. Verse 16, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, Judas is very simply the Greek form of the name Judah. So it's a very popular name. It's popular because that's, that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Judah. It's also popular because uh, in, in the 100 BC time, uh, there's a big military leader, general for the Jews, and his name is Judas. And so many were named after him. Judas Iscariot is the last. He's... Uh, uh, well known to us as the one who betrays Christ. Iscariot is just a family name uh, telling us where he came from. But again, he's most well known for his betrayal. His name is forever synonymous with traitor, right? Very few people name their children Judas today because of him. <clears throat> the question that comes up, and we briefly talked about this last week, is didn't Jesus know Judas's character didn't Jesus know that Judas would do what Judas would do? And of course he does. John tells us in John 6, 64, that Jesus had known Judas from the, be had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus knew that from the beginning. And he spent the whole night praying and he knows that this will happen. Yet he calls Judas to be an apostle. And think about this. Judas heard the Sermon on the Mount, which is coming uh, later in, in Luke 6. Uh, Judas would have seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He would have seen Jesus walk on water. 
They would have been in the company of Jesus for three years. An incredible privilege, but what an awesome warning, right? That, that we can have the greatest Christian privileges and end up hating Christ, right? Judas stands as an incredible warning to us. You can, you can have all the Christian privileges. You, you can come to church every Sunday and hear the messages and, and rub shoulders with us and end up hating Christ. What a warning that is to us. Well, as soon as Jesus called the apostles, he starts showing them how to serve. Verse 17, he came down from the mountain with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. I picture verses 17 through 19 as a modern-day internship. Right? He's just called these apostles, and now he brings them into an internship and saying, now watch what I do. He's beginning the training of the 12. Right? He's training them, and it begins by modeling to them uh, his work and his ministry. They begin to hear his teaching more and understand him more. They, they see his love, his mercy, his compassion. They hear his preaching on the kingdom, his preaching on repentance. When we get to Luke 9 and 10, Jesus turns the tables. They've been watching him, but in Luke 9 and 10, Jesus is going to say, okay, now it's your turn. And he sends them out to do what he's been doing. And also in Luke 9 and 10, he brings them back in and he debriefs them. So it's an internship. The internship begins, and it begins with watching him and seeing what he's doing, and then over time, he releases more and more responsibility to them. So that's the text. as a kind of a brief, quick summary overview of what's in there. A lot of information. Probably your minds are still kind of buzzing with, with all of it, thinking on it. What I want to do for the remainder of the time is just take some time for application. And as I thought on this, there's more that I could share, but as I thought on this, there are three points of application that really hit me and encouraged me, and my hope and my prayer is this morning, as we think about them, that this will encourage you. And the first point of application this morning is that Jesus builds his church from people who don't seem to belong together. And I've already teased that out a little bit, right? But Jesus builds his church from people who, who in any other world wouldn't be seen together. Again, you have fishermen like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You have this despised tax collector. He's a compromiser and a collaborator next to Simon the Zealot who wants to overthrow Rome. That's, that's an explosive mix. That's, that's polarized, right, left and right politically. James and John, they're sons of thunder, so they're loud. We know that they're glory seekers, right? Because it's their mom who goes to Jesus and says, hey, can't, can't my son sit at your right and left? They're glory seekers, they're, and they're loud. Next to Bartholomew, who, if he's Nathaniel, has no pride, no impure motive, and, and, and is very, very gentle in spirit. What a mix. What a contrast. There are, of course, seeds of discord and rejection within the presence of Judas. That's a strange community, right? Do you think they ever fought? We know they did, right? There's a couple times in the Gospels, it records they get in some pretty strong arguments, and yet Jesus 
wove them together into one community that would turn the world upside down. So that got me thinking, and I hope it gets you thinking, how is that possible? How is it possible to take this 12 group of men who are so diverse and bring them together into this new community that will turn the world upside down? And I think the answer is this. The answer is because in this new community, their unity is not found in their similarities. Their unity is found in their shared admiration of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that at once is encouraging and convicting. Our tendency, my tendency, I would, I would uh, wager probably your tendency is to be drawn toward people who are like you, right? We tend to be drawn towards people who are like us, who share the same likes and dislikes. Maybe they like to fish, or maybe they have children the same age as your family, or, or enjoy the same sports, or, or whatever. But the gospel pulls us out of that comfort zone to cultivate relationships that would not be possible apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where, where Paul writes, He himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, so making peace. Verse 16 of Ephesians 2, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. That's Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. So how was this community forged? What is the source of their unity? It tells us through the cross. Christians, our unity is not and must not be found in shared similarities, but again, shared admiration, shared faith, shared love for the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. Imagine a group of Jews and Gentiles who share nothing in common except centuries-old loathing of one another, right? Jews and Gentiles, they, they despise one another. Imagine now uh, they come to faith in Christ. Praise God. But then the Jewish people go and they have their Jewish churches. And the Gentile people go and they have their Gentile churches. Is that a win? Is that the gospel? Not according to Luke chapter 6, verses 32 and 34. Take a moment and look at Luke chapter 6, verses 32 and 34. There Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. That's convicting. That's pretty powerful. 
one very clear reason why Jesus died is so that people who would normally be enemies are now friends and live together with unity. Unity, not because they're all alike, but because, again, they share a love for Jesus and his cross. You see, the church should be composed of friendships that would never exist, save the gospel. Amen? The church should be filled with relationships and friendships that the watching world looks at and goes, there is no way you guys should be friends. There's no way you guys should be able to accomplish anything save Christ and our unity in him. Now, please don't mishear me. There's clearly nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar life experiences or situations. It's, it's entirely natural and can be very, very beneficial uh, to, to spend time with people who are, who are like you, to have Bible studies for young moms, for example, or, or Bible studies for newlyweds. But I'm just trying to press this morning that that's not the sum total of church community, that, that there's nothing compelling or supernatural about loving those who love you. There's nothing compelling uh, about hanging out with a bunch of people who have the same likes that you have. There, there's nothing supernatural about that whatsoever. Uh, was it last week or two weeks ago? Uh, a few of us went to a conference up in Grand Rapids, uh, Calvary Baptist, called All Church Ministries Conference, and uh, the speaker there was Dr. Gerson. He's the new president of Cornerstone University. And he shared an example of how early on in his life, he was at a church and he said, the pastor from the pulpit said this. And he said, when the pastor said this, he knew it was time to leave. It's time to go. I can't be part of this church anymore. And so he kind of has this all hanging on the thread, right? Like, what, what in the world did that guy say that caused you to leave? And what, what that pastor said was that they are so organized and do things so well and so efficiently that even if the Holy Spirit left us, we would just keep on clicking and do what we're doing. And he said... That's my cue, I'm out of here. <laughs> when he said that, it reminded me of Ezekiel. <clears throat> if you were to read Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, that vision uh, where he sees the glory of the Lord. That's this fantastic vision. And he struggles to, to kind of convey and, and explain what it is that he's seeing. His mind can barely take it all in. But this glory of the Lord suddenly departs Israel. It heads out west uh, departs from the most, or east, I'm sorry, from the most holy place, going east until you can no longer see it. That's unspeakable horror, the glory of the Lord leaving Israel. And yet, for a time, everything remains the same in Israel. It's a scary place to be. God's people are still there. Life continues unaltered for them. Eventually they go into captivity. But I was thinking about that in our text, and I wonder if sometimes we build church community in such a way it's so based on likes and dislikes that we could do community without the Spirit. Right? It's so human. It's so loving those who love you and doing good to those who do good to you that there's nothing compelling or spiritual or supernatural about it whatsoever. That's an ouch, isn't it? The community envisioned in the Bible is so rich and so deep what is compelling and supernatural is when a tax collector and a zealot can rub shoulders together. That's amazing. That's the gospel. Despite their many differences, there was nothing about the 12 that stopped Jesus from putting them together to work together for the sake of the kingdom. What I'm asking this morning is shouldn't it be the same for us? 
Should not the church be composed of relationships that would never exist but for the gospel? Jesus brings together liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, environmentalists and industrialists, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, kings and peasants, those with light-colored skin and those who have more melanin in their skin. Jesus does that. The gospel does that. And as the gospel shapes us and forms us, it should make the community sit up and pay attention and go, what? That shouldn't be possible. And then we can say, it's not but for the cross and our great Savior and our admiration for him. We may not see eye to eye or agree on everything politically, economically, on social issues, but in Christ we are one body, one family, one army, serving something greater than the sum of our differences. Amen? And so I don't know who needs to hear this, but perhaps even this morning there are some in our midst who are having a hard time getting along. That ever happened to you? Maybe you're avoiding each other. Maybe it's awkward around each other. You have some significant differences and your relationship is strained. Maybe there's some Matthews and Simons in our midst, yes? Some Matthews and some Simons. Different likes, different personalities, different whatever. What a wonderful opportunity to apply the gospel. What a wonderful opportunity to put your theology into practice and to love one another because that's who Christ has formed the church to be. Amazing, isn't it? <clears throat> well, the second point of application, Jesus not only, uh, <coughs> excuse me, not only builds his church from people who don't seem like they belong together, but Jesus calls unexpected and unlikely people to carry out his mission. And again, this is at once humbling and, and encouraging. Uh, the, this, this list of 12 men are a bunch of nobodies, right? They're very, very average. They're very, very normal, very, very ordinary. We're, we're, we're conditioned to think in terms of fame and, and personality, and do they all look like, I don't know, who, who's popular? Tom, Tom Holland? You know, are they, are they on the face of U.S. News or Time Magazine or, or U.S. Weekly or People Magazine, whatever, whatever those magazines are? We, we, we tend to think of people who, when they walk in the room, everyone just knows it, right? But that's not them. That's not them at all. God works by different standards. None of these men were in the running for most influential or man of the year or, or most powerful or most wealthy. There's no powerful politicians, no, no great athletes, no famous celebrities. These, these are the most common of common of common people Jesus could have found. The most ordinary people. Twelve country boys. That's what they are, unless Judas... Iscariot means he's from Judea. If that's so, he's the only one who's not Galilean. He's the only one who's not a country boy. Twelve country boys Jesus chooses to turn this world upside down. Is that who you would have chose? No way. Not in a million years. And yet Jesus chooses them to be the foundation of the church and carry forward the mission of Jesus. How is it possible that these 12 group, this group of ragtag men turns the world upside down? That's the same answer again, huh? The Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang it this morning, yet not I, but what? Christ through me. It's not about their credentials. It's about 
the Lord Jesus Christ who sovereignly called them. Right? And let that sink in, huh? It's not their credentials that qualifies them. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who sovereignly and graciously called them. He says, I chose you, I sent you. That's enough. That's their credentials. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's so easy to get discouraged because we don't have certain gifts. Satan is an expert in getting us to focus on our failures, our weaknesses, our fears. Satan will highlight all the things you can't do. He'll spotlight the talent that you lack. He'll bring up the skeletons in the closets that you don't want anyone to know about. Small churches tend to fall into this trap also, thinking, we can't do that. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough whatever. And the scripture rebukes us. Jesus has sovereignly called us. He has chosen us. He has sent us. Take the focus off us and put it on him who owns 10,000 cattle, who owns everything, who has all power, all might, all wisdom. Put the focus on him. He is our credentials. He is our competency. Abandon reliance on self. Abandon reliance on your resources. Cast your dependence on Jesus. And over time, he will transform you and do great things through you. But the key is you need to die to self. You need to depend on him. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies. I'm so glad to be a nobody, aren't you? God loves to use nobodies. What's a nobody? Nobody is someone who has died to self, died to self-reliance, and is utterly and wholly and solely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who God uses. He's our credentials. Which leads to the third point of application, that Jesus transforms us as we serve him. He starts with a bunch of nobodies and over time transforms us into uh, stuff he can use <laughs> for his, his praise and his glory. I'm thinking of, of Peter, right? Peter suffers from, what do we call it, the, the foot and mouth disease, right? And yet the Lord transforms him to bring thousands to faith in Christ. Peter denies Christ three times, very vehemently the last time, and then is found praising and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus changes him, doesn't he? I think of John, who I mentioned earlier, goes from the son of thunder to the disciple of love. How God turned a man with a past like Levi or a zealot like Simon into mature followers of him. What is more, remember I mentioned last week how Revelation 21 teaches that when, when the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of the sky and plants itself down on the earth, that it will have 12 foundations, and on the foundations of that city are written the names of who? The apostles. How's that for transformation? That is the destiny that Jesus had in mind for them when he chose them. How did they get there? They weren't there instantaneously. 
How did they change? How did that happen? I think there's a lot of factors. He prays for them. He spends time with them. They, they heard him preach the gospel. They rubbed shoulders with him. And as they rubbed shoulders with him, they were equipped and transformed and made fit for service. So I want to apply that. If you're still struggling with, how can God use me? Why would God use me? I want you to see that Jesus did not choose these 12 men because of what they were in themselves. He chose these 12 men, but because of what under his power he would make them to be. That's powerful, isn't it? That Jesus doesn't choose us because of what we are in and of ourselves. He's no respecter of persons in that way. He chooses us because of what he knows he can mold and shape you to be for his praise and his glory. Big difference, huh? It is not what you are in yourself, but what Jesus, by his grace and power, can make you for his glory. When Jesus called his first disciples, remember he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There are no self-made Christians. Those whom the Lord sovereignly and graciously calls are those whom he makes, he fashions, he empowers Someone has commented that a great writer can take a worthless piece of paper, write a poem on it, and instantly it's worth millions, right? Or uh, an athlete, a basketball athlete, can take this, this deflated and beat up basketball and write his name on it, and suddenly it's what? It's worth all this money. You can take this worthless piece of paper and draw a painting on it, and, and suddenly it's worth millions, And in an infinitely greater way, Jesus Christ has taken us, sinful, corrupted, repulsive sinners, and transformed us into righteous children through whom he has sent to build his kingdom. It gives me amazing comfort this morning to know that the Lord used people like Peter and people like James and John, people like Matthew and Levi, It encourages me to know that the Lord wants to work through people like that, that he takes these lumps of clay and molds them into extraordinary apostles. Doesn't that give a whole new perspective on life as a church? Doesn't that give a whole new perspective on the work of, in the nursery, for example, uh, children's ministry, uh, discipleship hour, being a youth leader, a word of life worker, mentoring, parenting, just being a friend, that terror in the nursery, right? When you see him coming, you're like, no. Or that quiet, quiet, timid boy. You can barely even tell what he says. And when he's talking, he gets tears in his eyes because he's so afraid. That was me, by the way. The loudmouth who will never shut up, Right? The kid who won't sit still, the homeless person we open the church doors up for, the the person who struggles with anger, the person you know who, who struggles with foot and mouth disease, just like Peter. Doesn't that encourage you? Jesus is still working on them. He's still working on you. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. I'm so glad no no one gave up on me. Gladly pour your life into them. Isn't that what our text is saying? How Jesus transforms them over time. It pays dividends over time you can never imagine. I think it gives a whole new perspective as a mom or dad, right? Maybe your children struggle with anger or anxiety 
or listening never, right? <laughs> Maybe your children are so timid, you wonder what will ever become of them, and our text is teaching us and encouraging us, don't give up on your children, and, and don't have the parental freak out either, right? Don't let the tyranny of the urgent make you lose sight of the eternity and the way how Jesus is at work through these every moment as a parent. Seize the day-to-day opportunities to point your children to Christ, all the while remembering growth takes time. It took several years for Jesus to mold and shape these 12 men to become what they become. It will take time as parents and, and youth workers and all these other responsibilities to see them grow and change. There is no, man, I wish there was, but there is no instant, spiritually mature Christian pill that you can take or that you can make your kids take. It doesn't exist. There's something better. The Word of God by the Spirit of God over time. Faithfully and consistently applied will reap benefits for God's glory. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. Jesus is at work. And in his grace and sovereignty, he's formed Orangeville Baptist Church, this unique body of believers to love and serve and care for one another. I pray and I hope and I trust a unique body of believers that would never ever join together, save Christ and his gospel. And a group of body of believers who are unexpectedly and unlikely people to carry out his mission and be transformed as we do so. All God's people say, amen. I'm going to close us in prayer. And as I pray, I invite the the worship team to come on up. Also, don't be in a hurry to leave. We got Coffee and Connect also out there. So stay in fellowship in ways that we never would apart from the gospel. Heavenly Father, what can we say? It's just uh, amazing to think about your patience, to take a piece of clay such as myself, and each one of us in here, and over time, in your perfect ways, to mold us and shape us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your wisdom. And Lord, now we are just simply amazed that you have now uh, sent us and called us to do the same in, in the hearts and lives of individuals who you bring into our path, to love them and by your grace and your spirit and your word to help mold them and shape them into the image of Jesus Christ. What a responsibility. Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to, uh, to know the scriptures, to be in your word and, and speak your truth. Help us with our actions, our attitudes, our words, to be imitating Christ. Especially just pray for moms and dads who who might be frustrated or discouraged or at their end of their rope and not sure what to do with their children, Lord. I just ask that this morning you would strengthen them. Give them your wisdom. Help them not to do the parental freak out, but to to trust you, to patiently, lovingly uh, administer the truth of your word. Uh, to their children, and I just pray for all the children in our midst this morning, here in this, in this whole building, asking, Lord, that you would hallow your name in their midst, help them at the earliest age possible to recognize their sin and place their faith in Christ. 
Help them to be growing by leaps and bounds in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as moms and dads take up that great mantle of training their children up in the things of the Lord. And help us as a church to be equipping the adults and, and the teens and every member within uh, to be doing the work of the Lord, to be using their spiritual gifts for the good of one another. Help us to love one another as you have loved us, and as we love one another in this way, help the community to take notice and see God is at work, that Jesus is everything. Jesus is what makes the difference, that Jesus is our only hope, no one else, nothing else. May you be glorified in this way, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.